Welcome to Econ Talk, coming to you from the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments or feedback for us here at Econ Talk, please send me an email at Roberts, my last name, R O B E R T S, at GMU, that's G M U dot edu. You can find more Econ Talk at www.econtalk.org.org, along with readings and links related to this podcast. My guest today is Skip Sauer, Professor of Economics and Chairman of the Department of Economics at Clemson University. We'll be talking about the economics of sports. Skip, it's good to have you on Econ Talk. Good to be with you, Russ. Well, the baseball season's underway. The St. Louis Cardinals are in their brand new stadium. Other teams are either planning new stadiums or hoping to have them, and those stadiums often use a great deal of public money. Do you think uh, these stadiums provide any public benefit, given that public financing? Well, I think there's a, a lot of public benefit uh, to the stadiums. Uh, I think uh, you know most of that benefit is is uh, captured uh, by the people who are selling the product. Um, we uh, we certainly enjoy our our sports and are are willing to pay. Uh, uh, a lot of it, a lot, a lot for it, as uh, indicated by the the salaries that we we pay to the to the ball players. Uh, but the question is whether uh, it's really necessary to uh, to subsidize the construction of these stadiums, uh, given the tremendous demand that's out there for the sport. And uh, uh, I, like most other people who have looked at the issue, uh, uh, have uh, formed I, th- I think a, a carefully studied opinion that. Uh, that uh, the public subsidies just simply aren't necessary. Those who are in favor of those public subsidies, usually the owners, strangely enough, they usually think that a public subsidy is a really good idea. What, what kind of arguments do they do they make when they try to justify uh, taxpayers financing those stadiums? The uh, the most commonly uh, pursued argument is that uh, the existence of the team in the city brings uh, you know tremendous economic impact. Uh, in the form of jobs, income, uh, and so on, to uh, to the citizens of uh, of the polity. Yeah, and they argue, I guess, that you know, when people come to the ballpark, they're going to beforehand they might eat a meal. Some will stay overnight in a hotel. After the game, they're going to go out and have a drink or another meal. So that that's part of the claim, right? These these dollars have some kind of um, multiplier sure. effect, right? Sure. Well. Uh, I'm a sports fan. I've I've gone to uh, to uh, baseball stadiums, football stadiums, and the like, and I've done all of the above. <laughs> Everything you mentioned is is something that uh, that uh, I've done. So, are the owners right? Do the people other than the owners benefit from having a sports team? Well, I think uh, there there are certainly some auxiliary benefits that are that are out there. But you know, the question is, what would I have done if I hadn't gone to the ballpark? You know, would would I have eaten my meal somewhere else? Would I have gone uh, uh, to a bar uh, in, in some other context? And I think in most cases the answer is certainly yes. So uh, we, we substitute uh, expenditure uh, from other things to uh, go to the ballpark and do the auxiliary things that are associated with our trips to the ballpark. It's really a classic example of uh, Bastiat seen and unseen. Right? We see the benefits of the person streaming out at the people's fans streaming out of the stadium to go out to dinner, but we don't see are the meals they would have eaten elsewhere if the stadium had, had not been built or the team weren't there. Exactly. Uh, the alternative, by definition, is unobserved. 
so uh, you know, it, it's easy to point to what is actually happening. Uh, it's not easy to document what would happen in the absence of, uh, of having the facility uh, uh, in the town uh, with, with the team playing in it. But economists who try to measure those unseen effects do find that they roughly cancel out. Is that, is that correct? Well, it's just it's very, very difficult to uh, look at data on income and employment and find uh, a positive impact of uh, a sports team in a town. It's, it's, it's just not there. Now, there are ways to, uh, to, to document, you know, the, the, uh, the side of, of the scene um, mm-hmm. that uh, you refer to in Bastiat's statement. Uh, if you go out and take surveys of people that, in fact, show up and uh, come from out of town and, and spend a little bit of money uh, at the ballpark and, and the surrounding area. Uh, so there, when you do that sort of analysis, you come, do come up with uh, some modest estimate of economic impact uh, if you do it properly. Uh, but most of the time, I think it's fair to say that the, uh, the estimates that are trotted out by the owners in support of uh, receiving a subsidy from the, the public purse, are, are those, those studies uh, vastly overstate the case. Of course, they usually ignore the fact that this large piece of land often subsidized by the city in other ways, sure. is only active 81 days a year in the case of a baseball stadium. Right. There may be a concert there a few nights. But right. the opportunity cost, the foregone use of that land, uh, is often ignored in these kind of calculations. That, oh, certainly that's the case. Uh, what What are the typical sizes of some of these, uh, what's the typical size of these subsidies that from the taxpayer that are going in some stadiums today? Well, it depends on the the nature of the facility, uh, <laughs> the nature of the public, uh, and uh, the, the, na- the nature of the owner. Yeah. They vary from, uh, you know, small potatoes, really, uh, you know, twenty or fifty million, uh, all the way up to five hundred million. So it's an enormous variation in that. Um, the uh, the owners, you know, try their best to uh, get as much public funding as they can, as a rule. And uh, the typical scenario is to put uh, the proposal in front of the voters uh, uh, at one point in time and see what you can get. And if you can't get that, come back and try for maybe just a little bit less. Sure. So uh, something's better than nothing. What what we observe, something is better than nothing. And, and what we observe, I think, is the, the the best that the owner can extract from uh, from the city that he's dealing with. And the political economy of this is that the owners are often well-connected individuals with political uh, power of various amounts. And then you have the fans themselves who are a voting block or a support block that influence the politicians as well. Sure. And as a sports fan, I don't know how you feel about it, but as a sports fan, I, you know, I love going to a, to a baseball game. Uh, and I'd hate to see my sports team leave town. I live in Washington, D.C. area, and I'm glad the Nationals are here. But I don't really uh, take much pride in the fact that others are paying for my pleasure. In fact, I think it's shameful. As you pointed out earlier, the ticket price captures much of the benefit, and therefore the justification of forcing non-sports fans to finance my pleasure seems a little bit grotesque. Well, uh, I'm not in favor of it uh, myself. I'm, I'm opposed to it. Um, I think, I think as, you, as you mentioned, the political economy of uh, the, the subsidy game is, is – an interesting subject to to ponder. Uh, it's it's not just the owners playing the game uh, 
and ratcheting down their demands as they go through one referendum to the next and try and find the, the winning proposal to put in front of the voters, they, they bring in side coalitions. Uh, they'll try and get the librarians or the, the people involved in the arts to, uh, to join in with them. Uh, if, you, if you promise some funding for parks or you promise some funding for uh, a library or uh, an arts uh, uh, endeavor, uh, you can often get other other lobbies to join with you, and these have all taken place. If you look at the record in in Charlotte, and in Kansas City, and in Houston, uh, where they you know do whatever they can to get the coalition together to just get them over that fifty percent line, so that the voters approve the subsidy. So the political economy of this is just fascinating. You mean on the referendum, they would have a, a, a joint issue the the stadium along with a park, a stadium along with an arts facility or library? Exactly. Oh. Exactly right. A little, little log rolling there in the <laughs> referendum process. Log rolling is correct. Uh, um, there have been stadiums built without any public money, though, haven't there? A well, few, I, sort well, of? Russ, that's the norm of? in Europe. <laughs> Most stadiums in Europe, and they're building some fantastic stadiums in England at the moment, are, are built... Uh, entirely with uh, money that comes from the clubs themselves. And uh, uh, that, that gives a lie to the argument that it's, it, it's a necessary thing for the public to, uh, to uh, build the stadium for the owner or to subsidize its construction for, for the owner. Uh, those clubs are, are less valuable assets uh, than uh, the clubs over here in the United States, but uh, they manage to finance the construction of their uh, brand-new, fantastic stadium somehow with revenues realized by their operations and not from the public purse. Now, one economic justification for a public subsidy is is called something uh, a little bit offbeat. It's the existence value of having a team that somehow, even though I may never go to the stadium and there, therefore I won't ever give any money to the owner via the ticket or even wearing a hat or other uh, sorts of uh, sports paraphernalia, Right. That somehow just walking down the street, I'm just excited that there's something called the Washington Nationals. Now, I think that's a little bit absurd, but let me try to give make it a, a little better argument for this case of the existence value. Let's suppose every day um, I never go to a game and my kids never go to a game, but I do get to enjoy the box scores and root for the Nationals or my more beloved Boston Red Sox from a distance. And I don't contribute directly to the owner's benefit and that would create some justification for public owner public subsidy correct well it adds to the value of the team uh, and one might uh, view this value as as an external benefit uh, that's not captured by uh, the ability of uh, uh, the Red Sox or the Nationals or in my case the Houston Astros to uh, extract revenue from me uh, I uh, follow the Astros on a daily basis through the through the baseball season, but it's quite rare when uh, uh, the the Astros uh, uh, capture capture money uh, from me. So there there is an external benefit that that is not uh, uh, captured by the team. However, it it it's quite a stretch to to say that uh, uh, a bricklayer in in Houston, Texas. Who happens to be a football fan uh, should be taxed to support my uh, uh, 
benefits as being an Astros fan in Clemson, South Carolina. Yeah, it does it seem doesn't a, connect very well. Seems a bit vulgar. Uh, yeah. Certainly agree with you, and I and I and I think we sometimes ignore how externalities can get captured. Those external benefits. So, for example, when my uh, son reads the Washington Nationals box score in the Washington Post, the Washington Post is able to capture some of that interest indirectly through advertising revenue and other means. So um, I agree the moral issue is uh, is certainly very, very powerful. Let's, let's move on to a different topic. Baseball season being underway, uh, hope springs eternal uh, for all fans, uh, even Cubs fans. Even uh, Cubs fans. They're in first place as we speak. And they think, you know, this could be their year. Uh, and even Kansas City Royals fans think it may be their year. But baseball is different from other sports. Uh, particularly football. Football revenue is shared much more equally, and the playing field is more equal in that sense. Uh, in baseball, there's a much larger uh, gap between the haves, that would be the New York Yankees, the evil empire, and the uh, have-nots. I think that would be, uh, who, what team, do you know which team offhand has the lowest payroll? Uh, I haven't looked at that for this year, um, uh, but uh, Kansas City and Detroit, I think, would be uh, near the bottom. Near the bottom. Uh, then you you have uh, it, it, in recent history the Oakland A's, who have been near the bottom, but actually have been been somewhat successful. But the teams near the bottom have they could spend more. They have a little bit of a disadvantage, though, compared to the Yankees, which is that the Yankees have that lovely uh, New York metropolitan area. Not right. quite to themselves. They share it with the Mets, but right. it's an enormous area divided between. Two enormous fan bases, Correct. whereas Kansas City is is much smaller. In in the NFL in football, uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin would have a very tough time fielding a competitive team without the degree of revenue sharing that exists in in uh, in football. In baseball, it simply relegates teams like the Kansas City Royals to the near bottom of the pile virtually every year. Right now, some say that that's not true. You gave the example of Oakland. Mm-hmm. Is it true that a team can overcome that disadvantage? Well, it's, it's very difficult, as as the data uh, indicate. Uh, the Yankees have have been on top for uh, quite some time. Uh, you know, about a hundred like years, would you say? About a century or so, or so? To, to be modest yeah. <laughs> about it. Uh, I feel sorry for them. They haven't won a uh, World Series in this century, but yeah, they quite do a have, drought. Yeah, yeah, they do have twenty six to go with their. Um, right. I define century as you know two thousand and one forward for those think home. Um, so you know the the odds are are stacked against uh, the smaller market uh, clubs uh, in in a league like Major League Baseball, which has limited uh, revenue sharing. You, you know, Green Bay couldn't field a baseball team uh, and uh, attract any sort of interest uh, as a town in a league structured like uh, uh, Major League Baseball. The major factor is television revenue, correct, and, and attendance. Well, the, you know, the, the major factor uh, in the NFL is, is, the, is their TV contract, and that's shared equally amongst all the teams. So uh, of the primary revenue source there, which I, I believe is two-thirds to 70% of uh, NFL revenues, that's split in, evenly, and Green Bay gets the same share as, uh, as, uh, as the New York Giants. And how does it work in baseball? Well, in in baseball, there's there's revenue sharing as well, but it's it's much more limited. Uh, the national television contract is a much smaller share of uh, league revenues, 
much greater share comes from ticket sales, and there is uh, sharing of revenues from ticket sales, but uh, it's uh, a smaller, a much smaller fraction of uh, than what you have in the National Football League. And in addition to the to the national TV package, of course, each team has their own team package. Their own team package, which they keep for themselves. Yeah. Now, uh, Major League Baseball has changed things in this century, in, the, in just the last few years, uh, through the collective bargaining agreements to increase the uh, degree of revenue sharing and to uh, levy a tax on payrolls above a certain threshold. So as a result of that, the Yankees do pay uh, a significant price now. I think uh, it's in the neighborhood of $50 million of uh, of uh, payments from the Yankees, from their revenue. For their excessive payroll, correct? Uh, partly so for their speak. excessive payroll, and part uh, of it is, is just pure revenue sharing. So uh, Major League Baseball is moving incrementally towards the uh, model in the National Football League, which would give teams the opportunities, if they so chose, to compete uh, at a higher level with the with the higher revenue teams, uh, but you know they'd have to spend the money on payroll. They Correct. have to they have to acquire the talent to do that, and there's no guarantee that that expenditure uh, is in fact going to be forthcoming. It, it may not be profit maximizing for uh, those uh, clubs to actually go out and spend the money. Uh, there's an example in the National Football League of uh, the Cincinnati Bengals, who for years just cashed their uh, revenue-sharing check and didn't go out and field a credible team. Uh, that's not good for the league. Right. And uh, the National Football League has is, is attempted to address that and require teams to to spend the money. Right. Given that you, given that the entry is restricted, and if, I hope we have time to talk about that a little bit later, but given that entry is restricted into these sports leagues by the league itself and by the individual teams, I guess you really want to have um, highly egotistical owners who have, in addition they want to, to win, irrationally right, want to win <laughs> beyond the monetary advantages. They want to be able to hoist that uh, Super Bowl trophy up high, right, or that World Series trophy, so that they increase the competitiveness of each team. Please, that, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, if uh, if you're you're just in the business of handing out monopoly rents, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there in the world who, who know how to cash a check. Yeah. So uh, you, you don't want, uh, if, if you like the spectacle of athletic competition, you don't want uh, the teams to be uh, uh, in those hands. You want the, the teams to be in the hands of people who uh, have uh, some interest in the competition itself as, yeah. opposed to, uh, the, as opposed to the bottom line. And what's the argument for that kind of revenue sharing? Usually that kind of... Um Egalitarianism uh, distorts incentives. It discourages excellence. What's the argument in a sports league for that kind of uh, sub cross subsidization of, of teams? Well, you uh, you want to have some degree of uh, what we call competitive balance. You you would like uh, 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 every team in the league to believe that it has some chance of success, however success may be defined. And, you know, that's an interesting uh, 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 difference between 
the American structure of sports with our closed leagues and uh, the more open leagues uh, in, in Europe, for example. In, in our leagues, we have much more extensive revenue sharing to try and keep the teams at the bottom in there with some chance of, uh, of, of making it to the top. But the top, uh, the top prize is defined in such a way that it, that it, it makes it uh, a low probability event for uh, a team uh, like, uh, say, the Tampa Bay Rev- Devil Rays to, uh, to view uh, themselves as successful. But I'm going to go back to the basic economics. We don't feel that way about fast food restaurants or hotels right. or manufacturers. We don't say right. that the people who are doing a lousy job should get uh, a boost, and the people who are doing a great job should should subsidize those right. people who are performing poorly. Right. So, what's the difference between those two situations? Well, there's there's, there's it's a huge irony, Russ. Uh, here in the United States, we have uh, closed leagues, which uh, have, uh, in some sense, socialistic principles at at the root of them. Uh, in Europe, we have a much more capitalistic open system where. Anyone can uh, reach for the top if they if they care to, and uh, if you if you don't succeed, you drop through uh, uh, the leagues on down to lower levels and so on. So it's it's a much more vibrant system of, of competition than we have over here in the states. Uh, it's it's an irony that I don't think economics can explain very well. You might. Uh, it's an interesting question. Let me make sure I understand how this works. In in Europe, I might I have a what is it called? It's it's called the first, it's not the first tier. What do they call it? Well, it, they they change the names for marketing purposes all the time. So uh, you you do have a top league and then a lower division and then divisions below that. In 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 England now, the top league is called the Premier League, and the uh, the division below that is called League One. And, or, or the championship, which well, is which is an odd me. sort yeah. of marketing device. It yeah. used to be very straightforward. They used to have first division, first division, second division, third division, fourth division, and so on. Well, let's call it that for the purposes of this uh, sure. conversation to keep it straight. So, if I'm in the if I'm a, a lower uh, place team in the first division, I'm at risk of dropping down into correct. the second division. Correct. correct. That's and, right. And if I'm an excellent team in the second division, I can move up. Right. Do they ever move up and then win the championship in those higher in those higher divisions? It's rare, but it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, uh, a team in the uh, top division in England right now, Blackburn Rovers, that uh, moved up and uh, was able to compete and actually took the the title in the top division uh, uh, in in the early part of the 1990s. I assume you're referring to what Americans call soccer. That's correct. And what, 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 what the Brits call football. That's what they call that's football. what they call it? Yeah. yeah they call it football. Um, Way too logical. Association football is, is, uh, is, is the true name for it, and it was uh, the uh, uh, form of football that uh, became dominant over there. They all emerged out of the same sort of mess, uh, rugby football, association football, and now American football. And association football was shortened to soccer from association. Yeah. So that's the that's the origins Very of the cool. term. But um, but Blackburn Rovers did win the championship. Uh, you have another team now, Bolton Wanderers, which uh, moved up 
into the top division a few years ago, actually bobbed up and down. And they've been on the cusp of competing for prizes uh, in, uh, in, in the league and in Europe, uh, in, in other uh, knockout competitions amongst other European clubs because of their stature as a top division team in England and so on. And you have teams that uh, were once dominant, uh, in in England, uh, Nottingham Forest, who around 1979 to 1981 were the best team in Europe, are now knocking around in the lower divisions. Uh, Leeds United, uh, uh, at about the same time, were a huge force in England. In England, uh, winning championships in the top division, they're now knocking around in the second division. So there's a there's a fluid nature to the competition uh, that you have. Uh, where anyone who wants to uh, manage a club and try and improve it can go all the way to the top, and, and if they don't pay much attention, they could drop all the way to the bottom. It is surprisingly meritocratic, uh, given the um, uh, more of a meritocracy uh, than we might expect, given what's going on in uh, France uh, these days with the riots over right. the possibility of, be- of being able to fire a younger worker. So basically what happens in the sports leagues is that in, in the, in the – uh, Football is in England is that, although it's England, France, but in, in England, the worst teams get fired, get pushed down into the uh, second tier. Does right. France have that, by the way? Yes. You know? Yes, France has the same system. Interesting. Uh, American sports are the anomaly here. <laughs> but the American sports, to come back to the socialism idea, one of the justifications for this kind of – these. let me say that again – these – these open leagues in Europe allow for competition, create competition, create a pressure on teams to perform and strive. Yes. But in America, the revenue sharing is supposed to accomplish that. But the reason it's different than, say, a manufacturing industry, the reason sports is different is that sports is a zero-sum game. Correct. The league is a zero-sum game. Sports isn't, but the league is. The league's got to be at 500. You've, right. You've got to have an equal number of winners and losers in, in any one season. So the argument here, I, I think, is that by cross-subsidizing, uh, you encourage uh, this competitiveness that would be difficult to create in other ways. The open league is one way to do it. Correct. But unlike, say, manufacturing or fast food or haircuts or financial services, uh, if, a, if a company does a bad job, it goes out of business, a new company can spring up and compete, and that profit and loss system is what spurs competition. In the sports league, you can't just say, I'm going to start a new New York sports team in the American League to compete with the Yankees. They've got a big share of the market, right? Because you'd have to get right. on a schedule, and, and it just wouldn't work. Right. There has to be coordination amongst the, all, the, all the participants in the league of some form. And that's the justification for the uh, sports not being subject to the antitrust laws. Is that correct in America? That's right. Uh, some there has to be form, coordination. Some form of joint coordination between the competitors is, is required. And, and so of course, the question is, uh, you know, what degree of, of joint coordination among those actors is, uh, in some sense, the right amount. Now, that being absolved or not having the antitrust clause apply to you seems to me, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, seems to be a, a, a club or hammer that Congress and others hold over sports when they don't sports leagues and owners when they don't like the way they're behaving. We have a little dust up going on here in the D.C. area. The Baltimore Orioles used to have most of the D.C. market in baseball. The owner, Peter Angelos, 
dutifully uh, pursuing his self-interest, uh, tried to keep out a Washington baseball team. Right. He's now failed. Right. But as part of that deal, he was given this bizarre control over the television revenues of the uh, Washington Nationals baseball team. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, let, 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 let's back up uh, a, a little bit. Um, every every team in um, Major League Baseball has some degree of territorial rights or territorial integrity, and uh, the you know ability of of uh, of, uh, of the league to to do that is is granted by the antitrust exemption. Uh, so there's just no antitrust scrutiny over whether uh, Baltimore uh, has has rights to exclude other teams from playing in Baltimore. Then where you get into the gray areas, uh, both within the league uh, and and outside, is whether whether uh, uh, Peter Angelos, as the owner of Baltimore, has the right to keep someone in uh, a neighboring city, such as Washington, D.C., from, um, from uh, uh, competing with him for viewers and, uh, and people who will, will attend the games. And so there was a tremendous wrangling uh, when the Expos franchise was relocated to uh, the District of Columbia, and Angelos extracted uh, uh, a lot of concessions from Major League Baseball uh, uh, by uh, you know, threatening to hold up the transaction. And so we still see uh, some now, now that the move is is more or less complete, we still see that same fight being um, uh, undertaken uh, uh, in the distribution of the product over over cable television. And so that's what that's what we're looking at at the moment. And do you know what his control of those revenues are? He's I, got something like two thirds or seventy percent, I think, of the uh, Washington baseball team's revenues go to him. And he's limiting how much uh, people have access to those games. I think he has ninety percent of the uh, the revenues that are associated with uh, uh, the network which carries the Orioles and the Nationals games. So ninety percent goes to the Orioles, which is kind of an odd odd proportion, you would think. But yes. that's uh, that's the price of getting him to agree to the the rearrangement, if you will, of, of territorial rights. Well, I think it'll be interesting to see if that privately agreed on contractual arrangement holds up because right. political pressure from Washington Nationals baseball fans who are now find it somewhat difficult to watch the games because the way the cable network is set up right. Right. are going to petition their uh, political leaders to essentially void that compromise. Yes. And I doubt it'll stand up over time. Yeah. I'd be very yeah, surprised. Most, most certainly uh, uh, the uh, uh, the arrangement is, is not what uh, uh, the customers uh uh, would uh, would have voted for it's uh, it's uh, you know an exchange of uh, favors if you will uh, and those favors favor uh, Peter Angelos and the Orioles. I want to go back. We're we're almost out of time. I want to go back to this issue of uh, the zero sum game nature of sports. I don't think I said it right. I think the real argument. Tell me if you agree. I think the real argument for subsidizing the Kansas City Royals as opposed to subsidizing. Uh, the Kansas City um, shoe manufacturer, is it because shoe manufacturing and other economic activities are positive-sum game, meaning they can create benefit for all parties, mm -hmm. 
uh, we don't we don't really care if Kansas City doesn't have a shoe manufacturing facility or if it's small or if Kansas City residents spend less on on, uh, say, uh, French restaurants than people in New York. But we do care in this weird sports league situation that Kansas City be competitive, unlike uh, manufacturing or services of various kinds. Because if Kansas City is inferior to the Yankees, which, of course, parts of American baseball league history they were, it's not very entertaining to watch a 37 to nothing uh, baseball game every single time. Right. So the com- competition itself has a virtue and a, and a benefit that we right. don't see in a, um, in a, in a no, quote, typical economic uh, transaction. Uh, that, that, that's right. And I, I think if, if it were the case that um, there, were, there were demands for uh, competing leagues and we, we could have a, a contest between uh, different, different baseball leagues to organize themselves and get just the right degree of cross-subsidies and revenue sharing between teams and, uh, and uh, you know, we'd observe the best outcome. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't quite have those conditions, and uh, so we're, we're more or less stuck with uh, a wrangling that's taking place uh, between uh, two interests uh, uh, who, you know, in the short run are uh, diametrically opposed. Uh, the, the movements to uh, subsidize the weaker teams these days are coming from uh, a negotiated settlement between uh, baseball owners and baseball players who don't exactly have a uh, a long history of cooperation, and uh, what you know, one can certainly understand that from the point of view of the players, because uh, Major League Baseball used its monopoly status through history to screw those wages down way below what they would be uh, uh, under uh, an open system of competition. And I suppose the the role of competition across sports leagues is where a lot of the competition comes in. Right. In you know the NFL was was had competition from the AFL that forced right. the NFL to open up new markets. Right. But even when there's when it's hard to start a new sports league, baseball's in competition with football and and basketball right. for allegiance over the course right. of the calendar. Even when they don't overlap in the off season, and so it's a strange thing. You know, here are these guys, as you say, this weird bargaining process is is creating the structure of the league. And changing the incentives and rules of the game, literally, to right. create a better or worse product, right. that's not an ideal way, a kind of hierarchical, top-down right. pattern is not an ideal way to create uh, value, but it's hard to do it otherwise because there's it's hard to spontaneously create those leagues. You know, the, the one place, oddly enough, where we see uh, 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 competition between leagues is in intercollegiate sports. Um, you have uh, the uh, the Big East and the Atlantic Coast Conference and the Big Ten uh, all competing uh, with each other simultaneously. Uh, you know that competition suggests that you know maybe the monolithic league structure that we have in professional sports is is not the necessity that we think it is. Of course, those colleges restrain their. Uh Competitive urges through other means oh, to make time. sure that, that the profits uh, accrue to the uh, colleges rather than the players. That's right. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, quite quite so. Uh, but but it I, is awfully competitive. It is, it is <laughs> intensely competitive, uh, both between uh, teams in the same conference and between teams in in, in different conferences. Um, so uh, you know, it, it may be fanciful to think that. Uh, 
competition between leagues in the same sport could emerge in um, in uh, in North American sport. But uh, you know, it, it does happen to a degree in in college sports, and the, the results are favorable. You know, if you look at the the revenues that are realized, for example, in the bowl championship series, when you know we essentially have a sort of limited tournament among the survivors of the competition amongst the, the, the different leagues in football, and also in the NCAA basketball tournament, which is just a huge money maker uh, uh, for the NCAA yeah, it's, uh, it's, on the same basis. Uh, it's been a glorious basketball season for George Mason University. Yes, indeed. Uh, wonderful publicity. Uh, great recognition for George Mason, the man, which right. I'm very happy about. Uh, but I would say that as effective as that NCAA basketball competition is in raising money and fan interest, I worry about its impact on uh, this other thing that universities sometimes are involved with called education. Right. I don't know uh, why uh, it, it somehow is, is put in the back seat often. Uh, you know, I, we mentioned earlier the effect on the athletes. Right. A little bit bizarre, but just on the students, I'm not right. sure it's always ideal. Oh, it's it's not always ideal. Uh, there there are clearly costs and benefits associated with the activity. Um, uh, you know, the benefits are, are, are obvious in in George Mason's case, and I think that that's what uh, colleges and universities are in this for. Uh, they they want to get on the national stage in some way, and it's easier to uh, get on the national stage through athletic competition than it is through your law school. So uh, uh, you know, if, you, if you go out there and, and play the games and you, you work hard, you, you get a chance and you, you just might uh, uh, be able to raise the flag of the school uh, through athletic competition. And uh, uh, I think that's, that's one of the main driving factors which uh, uh, have colleges and universities pursuing that. And yeah, that's how it starts. That, that's an okay Part of it, I think. I, I worry about the once it gets going, uh, the, the temptation to subsidize sports at the expense of other parts of the school, um, because the fans and the alumni like it uh, well, is very tempting. Oh, they, they they absolutely love it, and and the question is always who is in the driver's seat. Um, you, you know, at, up there at the top uh, with the uh, uh, the president making uh, uh, decisions about how the organization is going to be run and attempting to attract resources. He's always going to have uh, uh, an ear open to uh, where the money comes from, and your athletic boosters uh, oftentimes uh, have the president's ear. So uh, you, you, you need to, to uh, be careful, and not all schools are able to manage that, uh, that trade-off very effectively. So it, it is a problem. Uh, and as I said before, uh, you know I think there there are big costs and, and but also big benefits associated with uh, with athletic competition at the intercollegiate level. Well, on that on that cautionary note, uh, we're out of time. Yep, I want to thank you for joining us today. I've been talking with Skip Sauer, professor of economics at Clemson University, and he co-authors the weblog thesportseconomist.com. That information and other links and other readings can be found at our homepage, www.econtalk, E-C-O-N-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Thank you very much. Thank you, Russ. It's been a great pleasure.